This is The School Bell, brought to you by Independent Schools Queensland, the peak body promoting, supporting and developing Queensland's independent schools. Parents are very savvy about school choice. Holistic education, one that develops all the dimensions of a child. I'm very positively minded about the future. I think our schools are doing a great job. Hello, I'm Shari Armistead, Director of Strategic Relations at Independent Schools Queensland. Welcome to The School Bell, a podcast about issues of importance to Queensland independent schools. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Steve Scott. Steve is an author, keynote speaker and leadership coach. His passion for teaching leadership developed while serving for more than two decades in the Royal Australian Air Force. He leads both the new principal and aspiring principal programs for Independent Schools Queensland and chairs the Queensland Roundtable for Experienced Independent School Principals. He's also the chair of St John's Anglican College Council in Queensland. Welcome to the School Bell, Steve. Thanks, Shari. Thanks for having me. So your leadership teaching style comes from personal experience as an RAAF officer and trainer. So what were the biggest lessons that you learned from the RAAF and why? Gosh, there's so many, there's so many lessons. I think um, when I reflect back on, on all those um, opportunities that I had in, in the Air Force, I think one of the, the main things that I learned was that title and rank and authority and structure and what have you only get you so far. And when you get to play with really cool toys, like I got to play with in the Air Force, which is very fortunate, of course, those toys are only good, as good as the people that are working on them. So it really behoves us as leaders to get the very best out of people because when we do that, we get the very best out of the toys. And in my case, with you know a, a squadron of F-111 aircraft, um, and very, very capable technology, but they're only as good as the people you work on. So recognising that my rank and authority and what have you that I had on my side would only get me so far, I really had to extend myself and develop a social mastery. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I got out of the Air Force, yeah. Well, the F-111s are very cool toys, that's for sure. But as you said, bringing it back to the people, uh, that's really the whole, I've noticed from your book, is the whole uh, thread all the way through there. So what are the three main results or legacies that you as a leader refer to when you are looking at leadership? Yeah, I'm encouraging people to focus on, on how productive they are. I think traffic is a very good example of um, productivity because if you look at um, if, you, if you're say five kilometres ahead in the traffic and one car breaks by the time the car five kilometres breaks um, which is could be up to two minutes later the car that initially bro- uh, hit the brakes is now already driving away so there's probably a, a five to ten minute lag so there's productivity losses everywhere in life in, as leaders we have to think about that very point and how what we do impacts productivity. So the very first thing um, from a legacy point of view is to know that we'll be measured and weighed as leaders by the results that we achieve. And I think that's, that's in most cases, that's a no-brainer for everyone. Um, the second, of course, is that leadership is very much about creating leaders and not, not getting a, a team of followers, but uh, actually generating a, te- a team of leaders who can then go on and sustain that productivity and that quality of work long after we've been there. I think that's a that's a true measure of our leadership. It's not how well things worked while we were there necessarily, but how things keep going and getting better because of us. Because you've set up the next generation of leaders. Yes, yeah, very much so. And then of course, all of that, the the productivity and the and the, the team capacity should never come at the at the expense of people's quality of life. 
So I'm not necessarily talking about the hours that they work or the the pay that they receive. I'm talking about the very things that that impact us as human beings, like um, in, in inclusion and information flow and um, justice and fairness in in our working environment. So those things need to be to be prevalent in in everyday um, life in a workplace or in a, in our case in schools these days. So. You know, we often try and drive productivity and we try and drive team capacity, but we often do that at the expense of quality of life. And that's that, unfortunately, is just a negative that just goes against you in the mathematical leadership equation. It's like the old adage of treat people how you'd like to be treated yourself. Isn't yeah, it? well said. And, and that's pretty much it. And it's look after people and they will look after you. It's almost a guarantee. Mm. And I know in a lot of times in leadership, they do look at uh, sometimes as the softer skills. And I find that sometimes a bit offensive, actually, because they put it down as if it's not necessary. But the people-centric part of it is really very much what you advocate, isn't it? It's interesting that, that it's, actually, it's used, that the term soft skills is used in the leadership context. But much of what we talk about in, on the leadership programs, particularly with the ISQ Aspiring Principles, um, we're emphasising that the soft skills is in fact the hard stuff, you know, and, if, and that that's the heavy lifting in leadership is it's getting those soft skills right to get the people on board, and sometimes fighting um, institutional perspectives on things. And but you have to do that. You have to actually find the soft skills, which I think is actually the hard work. So yeah, it's a it's a bit of an oxymoron, really. When that's good, soft mm. skills, hard work. That's <laughs> good, actually. I like it. Mm. So your book, The Fifteen Disciplines, started as a checklist and developed from there. So it's grounded mm. in real world experience and examples. So what's the feedback been, and has that helped you adapt <clears throat> your teaching style? It's been um, quite remarkable. It's been quite six months actually since the book was was published. What we've noticed, um, in particular for the ISQ New Principles and the Aspiring Principles programs, is that the book being pre-read has meant that we can put more value into the the practical day-to-day running of the the leadership program, which you know firsthand we've invited you to come in now and do some of that that wonderful practical um, media relations work with us. So yes, the book, I love it. It's great. Yeah, to it's get been great. With them. It's been wonderful, and and we've already seen some of those principles having to go and apply that in the real world context. <clears throat> the, I think for us, the checklist has has raised a level of of consciousness. It's gone beyond awareness. It's become conscious in in many of the leaders' minds now, thinking about those things that I ought to be consciously thinking about. So if you um, think you know, contemplate a Formula One driver. And if you've ever watched that on TV and listened to the commentary, you'll often hear the engineers and the the driver's dialogue going back and forth. Mm, yes. If the engineers are actually checklisting. They're keeping the driver consciously competent uh, as they're driving this, this high-performance machine. And if you want to have a high-performance team, uh, I guess what we're asserting through this book is that we need to be consciously checklisting. So the feedback has been remarkable. I've been really humbled by the, the the fact that some people have gone and bought one book and then returned to buy 10 books because they've they've wanted to have that that connection between themselves and their teams on what is really is a simple um, concept but it's one that really does accelerate that rapid movement of, of common language and common understanding so we've, we've been really thrilled with that. That's great. How transferable is your RAAF experience to other industries, in particular school education? It's a great question. In my early days of consulting, uh, and I remember being confronted by a few 
principles in my early days at ISQ, one of the questions was, yes, but you had it easy in the military because you had rank and title. And uh, and I, I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective because there's a paradigm out there that there's a, because of that different structure that gives you a different leverage point or a different tipping point in your leadership. And, and it's just not the case. The, the more I tried to lean on those things as a younger officer um, and very inexperienced, uh, I, the, the less I got, you know. So it was... I really needed to 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 get above that. That but leadership is leadership in any context, whether it's education, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in corporate the corporate world or uh, or any in aviation or defence, leadership is leadership. It's about the connection that you make with people. So it's been incredibly translatable for me because I I remember David Robertson speaking to a, a group of new principals very early on in the process of, of my engagement with ISQ and he said Steve's going to bring a very different perspective that you won't often hear in education. And I guess all that really meant was that I'm just going to strip leadership down to its naked um, self and, and just talk about leadership, and that is the relationship that we have with ourselves. That's the tone for the relationship we establish with others. So lead self, you know, and you, and you can lead anybody in any context. You, of course, have to have that corporate knowledge of the context you're working in, but the skills are incredibly um, transferable. It's interesting, isn't it? I think because military of any type is uh, a bit of a mystery to people who are not in it. So, And as you said earlier about the cool toys, like that sort of stuff. But as you say, if you strip it all back down, it comes down to people. So that's the main... It does. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have some wonderful experiences from the military that seem quite interesting to a lot of people. They're quite boring from my point of view nowadays. But to, to people who haven't had that experience to the military, they find them to be very interesting and it's a different part of the world that they haven't seen or haven't had an insight to so I do understand that and and so I've, I've recognized over time that sometimes my repetition is still a great insight for them and so it's what, worth sharing. What about the life and death ones I mean that's the other thing obviously certainly um, it does can happen thankfully rarely that it's a life and death decision in schools mm. But in the military, it can often be a life and death decision. What about that? That would be different. Yeah, again, another great question, Shari. And I think that <clears throat> as I've learned through my ongoing exposure, and particularly now as a chair of a school council, there are many high-stakes situations in the military that are very relatable to um, school leadership. There's, it's high-stakes when you're, you're taking the, the care um, and the education of young children into your hands. And you're so vulnerable and there's so many different things that can go wrong and how alert you all need to be and how attentive to various aspects of operations you need to be. I really do feel that sometimes our school leaders are a much higher alert than, than I ever was in the, in the military. We had great structures and great systems and processes and lots of money to invest in those things in the, in the military. Not always the case in schools. So I have a great deal of respect for school leaders and the responsibilities they take and it is really a high stakes game in schools. Well, it is. And I mean, you work with Independent Schools Queensland on the Aspiring Principals Program and mm. the New Principals Program, as we said. Yeah. So can you tell us about that collaboration with ISQ first? And then I'll ask you about each of those programs individually. But yeah, sure. how did you come to collaborate with ISQ? Somebody, I can't even remember what the meeting was now, but somebody was um, hiring your boardroom. And this is back in the pre-flood days. And, uh, and I was meeting that organisation there. And I didn't even know where I was in terms of um, being an independent school peak body. 
and uh, bumped into Robin and I, and I apologised and, and then uh, and asked Robin if she could point me towards the boardroom and she said, only if you tell me what you do. <laughs> and Robin being a leadership consultant for Independent Schools Queensland, um, that was quite an advantageous uh, moment. And obviously ongoing because you enjoy working with that education sector in Independent Schools Queensland? I've, I've been blessed. There's no doubt about that. I've been blessed with the, the opportunity to work with such a professional organisation and with a peak body. Um, I, I rate ISQ as, as one of the greatest in, in this country as, as a peak body and the services that you provide and the generosity and the member focus that you have um, with your schools has, has been quite remarkable. So it's a privilege and the responsibility of that privilege is not lost on me either. I recognise how significant my role is in, in working with um, ISQ on, the, on this developing leadership capacity across the sector, which is such an important initiative. It really is. We've seen in principals in independent school sector are more like CEOs, as you know, and they have yeah, enormous responsibilities. Indeed. So there's a lot of research, of course, showing about the stress of principals. How important is it to support the principals in managing stress? It's critical. It really is. There's, there's no doubt principals today are experiencing... Um, behaviours from their communities um, that are very different to what they were 20 years ago. And, I mean, it, that's concerning from a social point of view, but there's, it, is, it is vital to be able to support our principals to develop the resilience to deal with that and, that and also the skills, the soft skills, to do the heavy lifting, if you like, in working with those, um, those people. But there's, there's a big focus in our leadership programs with both... Um, new principles and aspiring principles around developing the capacity um, to deal with that. So there's, it's the having the physical and emotional well-being, if you like, to be able to, to go into combat, to, to use that military terminology, because for many of them it can be like going into combat. It's quite confrontational and adversarial and there's lots of conflict. And, and if you... Um, at a very base level, don't have the physical and emotional well-being to come to work to deal with those things. It's very, very challenging and it takes a great toll on you. So it's vitally important that we we continue to add to that component of the program. And I think things like your program, where you're coming, your intervention with us and supporting them to develop the skills to deal with media, for example, that in itself is an incredibly stressful circumstance because yes, if the media is there there's already an underlying issue that's that's a stress raiser for principals and then having to deal with the media on top of that. So I think the skills that you're introducing to those, that the leadership level is so vitally important as well. So there's all those little things that are contributing to doing that. We can't do an awful lot about the cause of it from a school point of view, but we can support principals to deal with the symptoms of it and hope that through the work that we're doing in schools that we might be able to in some way indirectly and a long way down the track um, start to solve some of those social issues. Johannes Shaimoshi has been a principal of two Queensland independent schools. He took part in the ISQ New Principals program with Steve from 2011 to 2013. And as a principal, when you're really isolated at times, dealing with those big issues, often moral and ethical dilemmas, um, staffing issues that are keeping you up at night, to have, to have a group of people who are essentially in the same boat and experience very similar issues and similar circumstances, um, having those available, those people available um, to know that you're not alone is a big issue and a, and a big support um, 
and to be able to use your real issues that you experience in a, in a school and have people discuss them that know not only the situation but also how you as a principal feel in the midst of that situation um, that is very very helpful and I think because Steve's been part of those conversations for many years now he has developed a very good understanding of what kind of situations principals go through new principals program it's a mm. structured two-year program so it is. Why, why did you land on two years um, two years is a, is a really reasonable time. That one of the important parts of the of the program is to network, is to work together, and they get eight, eight full day workshops, thirty two sessions in there. We intertwine the fifteen disciplines through that, but that gives us great opportunity to get guest speakers, run um, skills development workshops like yours and others um, through there. They, there's and there's sufficient time to do that, and then uh, I think that there's. We look back, I think, five, six years ago, and the principals could just come back every year if they wanted to. And I think some of it was they just wanted to hear some more military stories from me. And <laughs> <laughs> not exactly a great reason to be coming back. Now that I'm sure put, it was more than that, Steve. <clears throat> now that we've put structure into, into the program and there's very set deliverables around that, I think it's, it's quite long. And it's quite onerous for principals as well to get out of their schools and come to these these things there's there's an awful lot of there would be a lot of that that's what I was wondering because yeah. I think just for any principals to get away for even one whole day mm. is quite difficult and a challenge so to have the eight over the two years it is a big commitment of their time but clearly worth it yes and I think that you know the true measure of that is how often they do turn up and they and they're all turning up and this year you know we've seen a I'm not sure whether we should be alarmed by it or or pleasantly surpri- surprised by it but Normally we have about 15 principals. This year we've got 23. Wow. So that might say something about the, new, the, the bag of new principals that are sitting in, in the sector at the moment. We know that's not all of them. Um, but it also, you know, many of them have told us that they've known other people that have come on the program previously. And they, well, and it's they, an affirmation that it's working, I think. It's nice, yeah. But I think it's also, it's, it's a wonderful affirmation of the great offerings that ISQ are generally um, providing the the member schools out there, there's a lot of a lot of new principals that we meet that aren't yet aware of ISQ's offerings, and by virtue of being on the program, they're learning a lot about that as well, which is great. So because that networking support on is ongoing, we've heard from other principals uh, tell us that <clears throat> is that the thing the connections they've made yeah, in yeah. these programs just go and continue even after that the programs finished. Hundred percent. That that and that's ultimately what Mark had really. Um, created this, the vision of the program around was making sure that they had lots of people that they could connect to but stay lifelong um, friends with and uh, the colleagues out there. They, we love it when we hear that they've, they've been connecting between the workshop days and supporting each other. That's exactly what we wanted out of the program. Because it would be very lonely. I mean, it always it's lonely at the top, as they say, but it is true because uh, there is people who are in those positions, like mm. you said, the CEOs and the school principals, who really, who else understands except another CEO or school principal? Yeah, that's right. And, of course, there's, a, um, there's an overtone of, of high trust within the, the new principal's setting, as there is with the aspiring principal. So we often talk about things, that there'll be something that I might talk about that will trigger something that's going on in a school, and... The, uh, one of the principals may then want to share that and um, exploit the collective wisdom that's in the room. And, of course, we will always facilitate that for them and let them do that. So there are, in, in addition to the, the routine 
structured process that we have, there's always this opportunity for them to use the time and the available wisdom that's around them. And I think that's very important. Very much so. So it's a complex, lot of complex issues, as we said, that are faced by principals every day. And you use practical scenarios as a big part of that training. Um, So why do you use them and what is the benefit? Uh, Well, that really comes from my military background. That's fundamentally how uh, leadership is developed in the military through a lot of experiential and practical learning. Um, There was a watching, I'm a baseball fan, and one of the... um, uh, games that I was watching many, many years ago, the commentator said that baseball is a game of defining moments. You know, there'll be a stolen base or a base hit or a home run or something like that that'll, that'll occur. The, otherwise, if you watch baseball, it can be quite long and boring and, and you're just you're hanging in there for that one moment. Life's a bit like that and, and leadership growth in particular is very much like that. There are defining moments that, that we experience that change the way we see ourselves or we see leadership or we see other people. So the scenarios introduce that and accelerate that into into the leadership growth process. So each scenario, there's always going to be a moment, a defining moment where people will have either it's aha, um, where they, they've seen now see something quite differently, or they thought of something in a particular way, but they weren't quite sure, and this has just affirmed that for them. So it can build their confidence, and, and so that they can then go back to school and, and reinforce that, or they can... Um, learn something that might have been quite con- confrontational, but because it was done in such a safe environment, they don't have to, they have nothing to fear. They can just simply extract the learning from it and then transfer it into confidence. Uh, and we've found that that's been the, the greatest way to accelerate leadership growth. And the recent Aspiring Principles uh, residential is, is probably validation of that. The feedback that we've had was this first time real experience that they had with the board and governance and thinking of things from a very different view, having to have their heads in a strategic mindset rather than an operational mindset. And that's quite con- confronting when you haven't done it before. It can be quite challenging, and but th- there, there'll be moments in there that I'll never forget. Yes, I'm sure. And actually, we did <coughs> speak to a couple of principals and saying that, uh, ha- re- re- recalling mm. the time that they had spent, <coughs> and they said, oh, I remember that day very well. Probably the best part of a day spent with Steve and other principals has always been the principals roundtables, that's what he called them, which was an established format for people to bring in issues out of their school and to discuss them with with other colleagues facilitated by Steve in in a format that established confidentiality and um, information share or ideas sharing and rather than telling each other what we should do. It was more about drawing out um, the collective wisdom of the group. And the benefit of that was that there was a wide variety of ideas from a number of colleagues, but also being able to troubleshoot issues together made that group such a cohesive group so that even now, eight, nine, ten years afterwards, we still know each other very well and get along very well and look back to those times very fondly. Yeah, he established a good environment to be honest with each other to and to look forward to going there, even though you may not feel like being able to leave the school behind for a whole day or four times, five times a year, but um, the outcome 
of that was always worthwhile spending that time away from the school. So you'd recommend it? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone should do it for a few years. The increasing complexity of the school Mm. principal role, the imminent retirement of many principals across Australia and of course the widespread shortage of the suitable candidates to replace them have created the need to increase the pool of that high quality Mm. candidate. So that becomes the aspiring principals program that uh, ISQ runs with you leading. So have you got candidates lining up for that or um, is it a hard sell and an interesting getting people interested in becoming a principal? It's not a not a hard sell per se. I, I, it's an interesting transition. The, the pilot program 2016, if you sort of go to Everett Rogers' um, Law of Diffusion of Innovations and that in, when he's got that, that curve where the, in the early stages there's the innovators and early adopters and 2016 program was very much that. We, this was an a untried, untested concept and and it, it looks very different today than what it was back then, but we were able to try this this concept. So they tried it and then the positive stories of their experiences got out there and now we've moved into the early adopter phase of that law of diffusions and and we've got a lot of people that are, are coming to the program, but I still think not enough. And the concern that I have around that is that whilst we're still filling seats on the program and there's there's there are way more applicants than there are um, positions for people to take on the program. What concerns me greatly is that there are more people aspiring to be a principal but not yet as inspired. Ah. And and it's because what they're seeing is happening to their principals and they're not so sure that that's the job they want. Yet for their, the life of their career they've been thinking principal is the place I, I want to be so they're still aspirational but losing the inspiration. And I think that's a concern that we have in the sector and I, I honestly believe that ISQ is addressing it um, the, uh, in the most effective manner um, throughout the country that I've seen. This particular program is intended to be incredibly safe, um, but incredibly real-time in terms of its, its experiences. And so the almost the new life that we've seen in, the, in this recent um, program of, of uh, I think we had 12 aspiring principals at the residential last week, they are all now feeling a little bit more inspired about taking on the role. Well, it's a real taste <coughs> test, isn't it? For it them? is, it is. But I think the, uh, there's lots of people aspiring, not enough that are inspired. Yeah, that's important. Mm. So it is, an, as we said, a significant investment in their personal growth. It is. Um, but how successful has it been to get them actually a principal job? Yeah, this it's early days. Mark and I, when we, we sat down and talked about this, we re- recognised this, this is probably going to be a five-year growth journey, and yet we've already got print some of those aspiring principals that have moved on to principal roles, which is great. We have to also accept that sometimes they may not like what they experience on the aspiring principals program because it's so real. Mm-hmm. And um, we haven't had too many of those at all, but th- there have been some people that have quite openly acknowledged to us that I've got a lot more learning to do yet, and that's... I think that's the, one of the greatest outcomes of all is that they now recognise where they've got to grow mm-hmm. and they can quite consciously apply themselves in those areas so that they are absolutely ready to be a principal. We've got, um, I think we have three graduates who have been um, successfully transitioned through the program and, and now become principals. We have possibly another 10 to a dozen that are now actively applying for roles as principals. That's great. It is wonderful, yes. and. Th- 
I love the fact that they're confident to apply now because a lot of them are thinking, you know, my principal told me I should come on this, but I wasn't sure whether I should come on this program. Yes. And now they've they've transitioned to this point where I wouldn't mind dipping my toe in the water and having a go at this and seeing what I can learn. And we've been emphasising to them that just applying is a learning opportunity. That's right. That's so fantastic. getting out there. Right. So I think the confidence that we've that we're able to create through the program as well. But the, we have to be quite mindful of the fact that some people may not want to go on to be a principal after this. And that still is a good thing for the sector because now they know what their principal's going through and as a deputy they could be leading... Well, more effective as a deputy, as you say. Yeah, well done. Yeah, and also it. if you put them into the role when they're not ready and they are destined to fail, there's no joy in that for anyone who's there and it's certainly not good for the sector. No, that's it, isn't it? And it's, it saves a lot of pain down track. Mm. Um, we don't need to be going wasting resources and time on that, that person can be incredibly happy as a career deputy and doing an extraordinary job in a school, and it's something they should be very proud of. And because they now understand the context for a principal, they can lead within that and support their principal better. It's a great outcome. So what's the biggest hurdles for aspiring principals, do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think it's still... It's it's actually not the aspiring principals. It's the, the outdated traditional thinking of many selection panels out there that they still need to get a principal to take on a principal role right and we have an aging population of principals i think you mentioned at the start of this conversation and we have to take the risk we have to take chances on some of these new aspiring leaders because they are our next generation and we've got to be careful not to be to be hiring principals with outdated traditional views of education as well because I think if we asked everybody to try and put their finger on what education looked like in 10 years time nobody knows Mm. we don't know what it's like so we need to have a more adaptive mindset and someone that comes in fresh with ideas and and quite innovative and there's some of these younger generations of leaders are just inspiring people they're they're quite extraordinary as are many principals now Um, but I think the biggest challenge is how that how do they compete strongly against a experienced principal and and be given that opportunity to step up and get a good 10 15 years under their belt as a, as a school principal so it's like the old conundrum when you <clears> first <throat> come out of school for school <clears throat> students isn't it when yeah. they're saying oh, how do you get a job when you haven't had a job and you haven't got the experience it's <clears> kind <throat> of now coming at that later part of their career it's happening in a lot of places and the world is moving so quickly now that we we have to be far more adaptive, and I know myself on a, um, you know, on a selection panel looking for a new principal. I will be looking at ten years from now, and I'm not looking at exactly what this principal is doing tomorrow when they take up the job. But where will they be in ten years, and what, where's education, where's education going to be, and what what is going to be the demands on that particular person? Do they have the the youth that we're looking for to to go the distance in that regard? Um, and it was just such a wonderful privilege to to interview so many young leaders and to see these extraordinary people that have so much to offer and we only had one opportunity to give to to such a large panel of people but I think we had 26 applicants and I honestly could have hired 12 of them on the spot they're that good there's a lot of quality out there that's encouraging isn't it it is it's it's lovely and I think we've become so particular about what we're choosing of course that we get down to splitting hairs when we're choosing between one person and another but there's some remarkable talent out there Well, if you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice about leadership, what would it be? Mm, um, 
leadership is such <laughs> such a complex thing. I guess I really should go back to my book and 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 talk about the essence of that, and that is to recognise when fear and ego are, are controlling your thinking, and to be conscious of that, and to find the courage and the humility to be the person you need to be in order to do what you need to do. And that's easier said than done. But fear and ego has such a profound influence on the way we think at a subconscious level by consciously recognising it and, uh, as I said, finding the courage and humility. Um, I believe that you'll establish the relationship you need to get the people to, to follow you and make them to make you their leader. Now, I'm going to um, beg you for a... Uh RAAF story here because <laughs> I know that there was one that you have hinted at that you have had a or fear or humility example yourself. What happened that you really learned from where you had to face people where you thought you'd made a mistake or a particular thing that you had to do? Yeah, thanks for that, Shari. <laughs> it's a learning. I've made lots of mistakes. It's a learning. Uh, I've made well, some... there must have been some, as we uh, said, in the military where you would have been fearful of particular things. And how did you overcome that? Yeah, there's some, th- there are many many circumstances where as leaders we grow and, and we often learn by the mistakes that we make. And, and of course, it's not the mistake that ends up defining us. It's actually how we respond to it. And I can recall one day where um, we were trying to recover the, a fleet of aircraft for um, a, a particularly difficult time in, in our lives, which was around the 9-11 stage. And, the, and if you make a mistake and one of the things that you're great, one of you fear most is actually losing the trust of, and the respect of the of those the people that rely on you every day to make great decisions. So if you do make a mistake, then that becomes quite overwhelming in, in your subconscious. And and for me, um, knowing that potentially one day I might have to lead these people into something that isn't nobody aspires to doing, uh, but we have to do it. You need to have their trust and respect. So when you make a mistake, you suddenly feel like you're in this really dark pit and that you have to climb out of it. And then the only way to climb out of it is to face it. And so it, 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 is, it is the response that matters. And it's extraordinary how many times I made mistakes and people didn't necessarily remember the mistake. They only remembered how I responded to it. So, so it's that owning up from, you know, mea culpa and getting them to trust you again and seeing you as a human being. Yeah, 100%. And I had some, you know, I remember getting berated by one of my my superiors one day for owning up and making uh, that I had made a mistake to my troops. Um, and I would do the same thing again in a heartbeat because the trust and, and, that I, and the respect that I got from the troops that day, as embarrassing and as humiliating as it was to, to reveal at the time, was in fact quite empowering. And I am not a leader unless... I have the people and so I have to do what I have to do if I have to fall on my sword or I have to face my fears or do whatever it is I need to do to get those people on board I will do it because that's the right thing to do. Thank you that's a, a really is coming full circle back to the people again people centric about your whole uh, the 15 disciplines and what mm. you do with the aspiring principles and the new principles program so it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Likewise Sharon. thank you. Thank you for joining us on the school bell. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to The School Bell, an Independent Schools Queensland podcast. To learn more about Independent Schools Queensland, visit our website, isq.qld.edu.au. To catch our next episode, you can subscribe to ISQ's The School Bell on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts.